This episode contains descriptions of events that some listeners may find distressing. The melting point for plastic is about 130 degrees Celsius. For lead, it's 327 degrees. For aluminium, 660. And we've on fire here at Valley Parade. The whole end of the stand at one side is actually in flames now. I can see the orange of the flames. The game is actually stopped here at Valley Parade. I'll tell you right now, this story goes to some hellish places. There's injustice, conspiracy theories and the fire that almost 40 years later is still leaving scars. We can see the flames going up into the air there. Take their time, don't rush, don't push, wait for the kiddies. In 1985, the football ground at Valley Parade hit 900 degrees. A big part of the space was swallowed by fire. 56 people didn't make it home from the match that day. We are going to have to disconnect very shortly because it really is craving all the time. We're taking a break, we're getting out of here. I'm Mubin Azar and I'm going to tell you the story of the Bradford fire. A lot of people think this needs to be left alone. But over the last few months, I've been chasing down every lead I can to try to get to the bottom of what really happened. You see, the official line is, it was a tragic accident. An inquiry said so. But that's just one take. There are other versions as well, involving organised crime, cover-up, and even the British government. Police said tonight that after a painstaking search of the main stand by forensic scientists, they hadn't yet discovered the cause of the fire. But they've still not ruled out arson. You hope that people hadn't got trapped in there, you hope that everyone had got out, but... There was something in me, inside me that knew different. There was no screams, there was no surge. Everyone was unconscious. Everyone was asphyxiated. Everyone deserves that when someone goes to a football match, they can expect them to come home. And when you dig, there are holes. Can you just imagine that it would have been brushed away as neatly as this one has been? Please listen to me, or this will terminate now. I'm listening to you, go for well, it. shut up, then. Uh, don't tell me to shut no, up, that's entirely inappropriate, stop, stop, actually. Stop There's been a potential massive miscarriage of justice here. From what's the story sounds, this is 900 Degrees, Chapter 1, the 11th of May, 1985. Bright sunny day. Weather was warm. Everyone was in claret and gold. They were wearing fancy dress. The people just seemed so happy. It seemed like it was absolutely random. Everyone was having a great time. It was carnival atmosphere. It was electric. It was just a sea of people just having real fun. You know, stood on the top of the toilet blocks. And fans clinging off floodlight pylons for a better view. The whole week was built up, you know. People were arriving back in Bradford that lived in Australia, had come home, especially to see this game. Tony Delahunty was the head of sport at Pennine Radio in 1985. I need to tell you, I'm not a diehard fan. My brother, though, is a massive Liverpool supporter 
And as he's older than me, that kind of decided where my allegiances are supposed to lie. The starting point of this story is football and how those match days bring so many people together. But it goes way beyond that. Tony was commentating that day and pre-match he saw the joy heading into the final game of the season. Bradford City had been through a, a rather turmoil of a time. They'd been rescued financially by a number of people coming together. Two years earlier, in 1983, Bradford City Association Football Club were a fingernail away from ruin. Financially, they'd pretty much collapsed. But as every fan knows, they were rescued at the very last minute. From that rescue, when they might have not even been able to continue, they'd suddenly built a platform which was heading for another division, the division that they hadn't been in for 50 years. And as we got nearer to the end of the season, the euphoria was building up. It was building up in our newsroom. It was building up with our, our, our commentators. Roll on the last game of the season against Lincoln City, who had nothing to play for. Bradford had already won the league, so the match itself didn't really matter. It was just a lap of honour. Sell out, you know, sell out. The big game didn't matter. They're playing Lincoln City. This was going to be the Bradford City show, you know. The game was going to be a celebration. 11,000 fans wandered the streets to the Manningham area of Bradford. I know this place from the times I went to Bradford with my dad as a kid. It was a rough industrial part of town. There's a lot of concrete sprouting dandelions and it was also a home to the city's red light district. But on this day, it was claret and gold, the famous colours of Bradford City. I seem to remember there was a band playing and the, the trophy was there because we were already champions. Everything was brilliant about it, you know. People were hugging each other. Hey, how are you? I haven't seen you for 30 years. You were at Bradford Grammar Work. Yes, I was, you know. I have never in my life and since seen such a, a joyful spirit of camaraderie. The deal was done. The club had the top spot of Division 3 before the last game of the season. A trophy presentation happened before the game. Footballs were being kicked into the stands. Music was blaring. It was what you expected it to be. On a day of celebration, it was packed to the gills. The sky was blue, but barely a, a cloud in the sky. We just kept looking around and kept saying, this is incredible, this is wonderful, this is marvellous. So I was probably up with the rest of them. Stand up for Bradford City, stand up for the Bantams. Watching kids, uh, grandfathers with, with their sons and their grandsons and their granddaughters there on a day of total, total celebration. What on earth could go possibly wrong? What could did? Tony arrived at the stadium, like most people, on a high. He was, of course, the adopted voice of Bradford City. We were in a very good commentary position even in those days. We could see both ends of the ground. That's not always available to commentators. He had a great spot, but the first half was, well, kind of boring. It wasn't a very good game of football, to be honest. I didn't think it was. Not a lot happening. The most memorable moment was when a Lincoln City player was injured. But five minutes before the end of the first half, something changed. The feeling of triumph shifted 
but this was more than just something being imagined. The crowd got louder and then fans started to run onto the pitch. We're on fire here at Valley Parade. The whole end of the stand at one side is actually in flames. It was just so fast. When fire goes, it comes and it's on its way. Now I can see the orange of the flames. The game is actually stopped here at Valley Parade. At first, I'm wondering how far is this going to go? You know, is suddenly a hose going to come on? And there I was, somewhere between thinking of wanting to continue the broadcast and then suddenly realising it's getting hot here. We're going to have to get out of here. Before that, there was a certain amount of shaking of fists and a bit of a hoo-ha at that far end. And they're running out of the ground now from that far end at this moment. And I'm hoping that the police, I can see some policemen's helmets over there, can control this. It was pandemonium. It, it was absolutely pandemonium. Total panic. Total, total panic. It looks like there could be a situation of panic, but all the time people are spilling under the pitch and we can see the flames going up into the air there. People were falling over. At the bottom, you've got the, the wall and people were crawling over the wall. We're getting reports outside that that steam is going over and people are running around. They're running around beside us. They're running around all around us and people are saying, get onto that pitch. People all the time spilling onto the pitch. If you listen to the comments, you hear Mickey Bullock's voice go, quite rightly, a bit panicky. Yeah, something's going to go on here, something's really going to go bad here. Mickey Bullock, you're, you can see above me, oh, what can you say? The whole stand is on fire, Tony. It's an absolute and it's spreading quickly. There's going to be, there's going to be problems, Tony. You don't think, of how could I react to this situation? You just react. Let's get all those people out of there. Let's get those people, just take your time. Don't rush. Go down there. Take your time going down there. Don't pull on the wires. Keep the electrics over there. Keep them, take their time. Don't rush. Don't push. Wait for the kiddies. I have never in my life got near to that level of heat. And I never, ever want to get to it again. People are coming round us. You can hear the heat. The smoke coming everywhere. We are going to have to disconnect very shortly because it really is craving all the time. We're taking a break. We're getting out of it. We'll take a break. Now think about that. Those are commercial words. Taking the break. We'll go for a break. We'll be back in a minute. Play a bit more music. If it, if it hadn't been commentary, we'll be back with a commentary. We'll be back after half time if it had been half time. We'll take a break. This wasn't a break. There would be no second half. As Tony's commentary disconnects, he scrambles over two walls at the bottom of the stand. Other fans are doing the same thing. It's not easy. There's a five foot drop into the standing section, then another drop onto the pitch. But Tony made it out. Looking back at the stand, the joy had gone. In its place, there was anger and panic. I'm out. I'm safe. I'm on the park. Yeah. But I'm looking back at dense smoke. I couldn't see flames. Just dense smoke and enormous heat. And I see this old guy over there, and I, and I want to go in and I want to get him out. I maybe got an inch, but after that inch, the, the heat. It was absolutely enormous, and that's when I turned around to the policeman and said, get him out! My job, along with you know everybody else in there, is crowd control. The aim is you don't want to be arresting anybody, you don't want anybody getting injured, and you want everybody to have a good time and go home safely. 
you know, that's a good day. It didn't happen like that, though, did it? Nigel Wells was a policeman on duty at Valley Parade that day. You could just see these wisps of smoke. These wisps of smoke got sort of wider and wider, and I'm thinking, well, I never saw that smoke bomb. Where on earth did that smoke bomb come from? A lot of people thought the same thing. A smoke bomb, although annoying, it wasn't that unusual at a match. A bit of trouble was kind of expected on a day like this, a day of rowdy celebration. That's why there were 144 police officers at the match. So the game's still going on and I'm watching this smoke and I'm thinking, well, where's the next smoke bomb going to come from? And then, of course, it, it just went, basically. For a couple of minutes after the first sight of smoke, the game continued. The ball made its way back to Lincoln City's goalkeeper, David Felgate. It appeared he'd spotted the flames, so at that point, he launched the ball out of the stadium. And then I saw, then I saw it. I'm watching this footage from the football match. It starts with this Yorkshire TV logo, which I remember from when I was a kid, actually. And everything looks kind of entirely normal. Yeah, my name's Paul Town, 53 years of age, live in Bailden, about four miles from Valley Parade, which is uh, close to my heart. Well, my dad used to go to the tea bar, probably about 20 to four, he'd go every week, he'd go to the tea bar at the back and get, I, used to, I was a bit of a freak for a Mars bar back then. It's odd, because I think this is actually live from the match, so at this point when this is being broadcast, it's just a football match. It hasn't turned into any kind of incident. But actually, you see in the crowd, there's one particular stand where you can see a bunch of people I don't know whether I heard something, but I looked to my left and I could see smoke coming up. Quite, you know, thick smoke. And then you just saw this little bit of a fire and nobody did anything. I'm Julian Gratton and I'm a lifelong Bradford City fan. It's really odd because this is being filmed like it's a regular football match, but then in the background you see there are flames. It just seems that no one's really reacting. So there's people watching the match. You start to see this, this fire kind of just grow and grow. There's a lot of hustle and bustle. They, they stopped the play. And then the, the biggest thing I can remember was just the flames hitting the roof. And, and just when the flames hit the roof, it just went. And this thing were brutal. Oh, bloody hell, I just look awful. This, this fire is just whooshing straight across the stands towards the brick building. You could hear the bitumen coming off. Choo, 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 choo. So you were getting hit by hot bitumen coming off the roof. I'm thinking this, this bugger's not gonna stop. I could hear a lot of timber dropping from the roof panels and I started thinking, right, I think this is gonna get serious. Still no sign of my dad. And then, then that's when the panic set in. And the smoke now, this kind of dense black smoke, it's as if it's just pouring into the sky. And amongst all that is the pitch. And on the pitch, people are being dragged along. People are running. There's just panic. Something inside me said, you've got to get on that pitch. 
because I knew at the back the turnstile doors would be locked. But you're left with a scenario, which is probably only probably about 10, 15 seconds, is you don't want to leave your dad. He punched me in the back with some force, to be honest. He said, get over the wall, Paul, and, it, it, you know, and I still do is what he says now, you know, my dad. He gives me advice and I'll follow it. As a 15-year-old, I did the same. So, yeah, I ran. I just remember it being all on fire and I just could not take my eyes off it. Got to the other side of the pitch, looked round and it was just... I think the thing that shocked me most was the speed of it. To see something you've sat in every other week disappear in four minutes. Really quickly, it's moved from it being a relatively significant but small fire to now the length of the stadium. Well, now my mate, my colleague, he lost his helmet and his, his hair just burst into flames and his natural reaction was to put his hands on his head. You know, yeah, he put it out, but also then he was gone then because he burnt his hands, so he didn't know where he was after that. So I grabbed hold of him by the lapel, kept him with me. And then you just heard somebody sh scream, oh my God, oh my God, get him out, get him out. And this guy, this poor guy staggering down the stairs, head to toe on fire, like literally like a Hollywood movie on fire. And then this wave of like what can only be described as flame just took him. And it was just like literally he was there and then he was gone. It almost like, seemed like a watching a movie, an horror movie almost. This is horrible. There's a man on fire. It looks like you, know, you can imagine this as a, as a stuntman, but he's not a stuntman. This is absolutely real. There's a man on fire just surrounded by people. And then we're picking him up and he's saying, no, I'm gone, lad, I'm, I'm gone, leave me. And we're not bloody leaving you. Seth, <laughs> we're not leaving you. How are we going to get them to safety? That was all I was worried about. Hell's bells, I didn't think you'd get me like this after so many years. and a whole bunch of people that are looking nervous and looking like they don't know what on earth has happened. It's just terrifying. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Four and a half minutes from the first sight of flames in the G block to the entire stand being swallowed up. It's estimated that the temperature in parts of the stadium hit 900 degrees. Paul, Nigel, and commentator Tony all got out okay that day. 11-year-old Julian Grattan did too, after watching from another stand. In a lot of ways, Julian was really lucky. I remember walking down the muddy hill towards the entrances and just having this feeling. And it was just a weird, weird feeling. It's like a sense of something. And I just think that, you know, something grabbed hold of me. I remember I could see the turnstile and then not wanting to go in. So I said to my dad, I didn't want to go in. And I really said to my dad, I didn't want to go in. I didn't want to go in. And it's, it's such a bizarre thing to kind of have to process and understand. There's lots of these stories. And I'm pretty sure there must be people who would have been in that stand on that day who missed the game for some reason, therefore have a different story to tell. And you will always find stories like these. But it's something that's always stayed with me, the, the whole thing of getting right to the door. It's literally, you've dodged a bullet. That, I mean, that is what you're talking about here. Dodged the bullet. He's right. So many others didn't make it. She was a typical 21-year-old. David Mole was out in Leeds on the day of the match. His sister Elizabeth had gone to the game. She was a younger sister. She was two years younger than me. Um, she was born in 63. That's what's quite strange, really, when I think about her. I couldn't imagine Elizabeth getting up to 60. You know, she's always 21. <laughs> Elizabeth is kind of suspended in time. You get that with a lot of families who lost people they love. Back then, she worked at a pub where the Bradford City players used to drink and they'd invited her to the last game of the season. She'd never been to a football match in her life. <laughs> She'd been once to a rugby league match. Uh, it was because there were football players with young, attractive lads. Elizabeth were so interested in that rather than the football. When David got home that day, he was told to call his mum. Elizabeth hadn't come home, and then he turned on the TV. Shock, more than anything else. My, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was horrific. But my, my feeling was, Elizabeth would have gone to a football match. What, she, she just wouldn't. What would she go there for? Um, so I would, although we went looking just to, we were convinced that we wouldn't find anything. We were absolutely sure. Elizabeth never told her family she'd gone to the match. But just to be sure, David went to have a look around Valley Parade. I couldn't just sit there and, and do nothing and wait. I, I just thought, well, we'll go down and we'll see if the police have any information or anything like that. So me and my best friend got in the car and went to Bradford. Don't know why we went. We, were, you know, we just went and found a car. We found a car there just off Manningham Lane. They found Elizabeth's car parked just one corner away from the now partially burned down Valley Parade. It wasn't what they wanted to see. Elizabeth's abandoned car 
one block away from the stadium, smoke and ash drifting through the air. So that's when we sort of had an inkling that, that, that you know, something hadn't gone right. We were pretty certain that that, that were it. Elizabeth had gone to the game with her friend Jane and Jane's boyfriend. Whilst he'd escaped by jumping onto the pitch, Elizabeth and Jane tried to leave through the entrance. As they weren't regulars, they didn't know the gates were locked till close to full time. It was there in the entrance tunnel at the back of the stand that their bodies were found huddled together. All the time I kept saying, if it'd only been me there, because I was used to being in crowds, I was used to being at matches, so I'd have had more chance, I thought I'd have a more chance with Elizabeth. They just followed the crowd. 56 lives ended. Most bodies were found en route to the entrance. Just like Elizabeth and Jane, many people thought they could get out of the stadium the same way they'd got in. Instead, they found they were trapped and the gates had been locked. It's just, you know, 21, it's no age. I think about everything that I've done since I was 21. And none of that were fulfilled for her. She was never never an auntie. She was never a, a great auntie. She was never a, a wife. She, there were no, there's been, never been wedding or children or anything. She had a long life in front of her and, and she didn't have a chance to, to do anything really in her life. It was quite... Um, an unbelievable scene, really, because it was like misty and, well, smoky. Back in the ground just after the fire, off-duty police officer Colin McKenzie remembers the scene. There was silence. Obviously, the sirens, you could hear that going on. But amongst everyone there, there was just silence and disbelief. And people were wandering around in a daze. They were traumatised by it. They might have been near the flames. A lot of them were flushed and red-faced. They might have well been in the flames of the main stand themselves and made their way across the pitch and out the other side. But it was a surreal feeling there. He left the stadium and headed home, terrified by what he'd just seen. We watched, obviously put the news on and watched it on the news. And it was surreal watching it. And um, I'll be honest, I had some. I started drinking then, and I had a couple of brandies to calm calm me down. And I was home then, safe and sound. By the time Nigel Wells finished his shift at the stadium, he desperately wanted to be close to his wife and daughter. And I came through the door. It sounds daft talking about this, but I just got hold of them, and we sat in a chair. And I just had them grabbed round their waist and I just would not let them go for an hour. I was just holding them. They both sat on my knee and I just would not let them go for an hour. You can't really describe it, but we were together, we were a family. And that's all that mattered. Yeah, I love them dearly. For the emergency services, the work of sifting through the ashes continued into the night. Their job was to help anyone they could, 
But as time passed, it became a much grimmer mission. Colin McKenzie began his shift as an officer the next morning. We were briefed that our job was to... Well, search for body parts, to be to be honest with you. It was just, everything was just mangled. The, the structure was, obviously most of it was wood, but it, it, there was lots and lots of ash, certainly at the top. Uh, no roof, just carnage, basically. The old wooden stand was in no fit state to hold fans even prior to the fire, and we'll come to that later. But looking at the image of the burned out stand on the day after the fire, you'd be hard pushed to imagine it was a stand at all. There's metal that's kind of still in place, but the roof and wooden seating are totally gone. We had to sieve all the ashes and all the debris, looking for, like I say, body parts or evidence or anything anything at all that we could do just search searching at that stage it's a job of work and you just get on with it that isn't the time really to ponder on it or dwell on it or grieve that wasn't my time when i'm i'm trying to work and i'm trying to do what i'm told to do but some policemen had to tell the deceased that their kids had died and I always found that the worst job in, in the in the whole of my police service. That was always the worst job. Telling people that their sons or daughters or husbands have died. It was someone's job to tell Elizabeth Mould's parents that their daughter's life had ended. I brought Elizabeth's car back and parked it on my dad's drive. In hindsight that was a mistake because my dad just sat in the window staring at the car. And they say people don't go white overnight, my dad did. He jet black hair and within a week of that happening, he were white, totally white. It really hit him badly, it hit him hard. I would say the fire affected me later in life than having it did as a 15 or 16 year old because you, you try to process it maybe try to forget it, not being able to forget it, you know. I've always used this term, putting it in a box and putting it away somewhere. I remember, like, a, a year or so after the fire, going to a bonfire, and then that night having the most horrendous nightmares. You, you know, it was like, almost like a proper, you know, I guess they'd describe it as PTSD now. Like, shell shock almost. There was no counselling back then, I don't think, for, you know, dealing with what we saw. So you just got on with your life. You've got something in you that needs to come out. And then, the, you know, you, your anxieties and depressions from that day, I think that, that'll never go. In those days, it, they just jammed as many people as they could into a, 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 you know, old wooden seats. And really, if, if you look at it and think about it, in it was an accident waiting to happen. I've never been angry about it because that, I place it on record. It was a, to me, it was a tragic accident, so I can't draw any anger from it. 
most people see the Bradford City fire as an accident, but there are many who don't see it that way at all. When I started working on this story, I knew it involved loss. What I didn't expect was talk of a scandal and even a crime. Coming up. Why weren't questions asked? Did this fire start by a discarded match or cigarette? Or was was there something else going on there? I just don't think they gave the people that were carrying out the investigations enough time to do their job properly. There is a knowledge that that man has had a series of unexplained fires. Yeah, you can excuse one, you can excuse two, but when it becomes a consistent pattern, then it's right that somebody needs to be asking the questions. Deceit crops up when no one is willing to actually say, well, is that true? Any sort of thing that could cost Bradford City dear resulted in people saying, just stay away from our club. Today, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind, 100% there would have been prosecutions. To suggest that he had anything to do with causing that fire, I find absolutely disgusting. Please listen to me or this will terminate now. I'm listening to you, go for it. shut up then. Uh, Don't tell me to shut up, that's entirely inappropriate actually. There are holes in the whole thing. Nine Hundred Degrees is presented by me, Mubin Azar. The series is produced and edited by Callum McRae. Additional sound design by Tom Bruins. Executive producers are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. Music is supplied by KPM, and our lawyer is Emily Barber at Reviewed and Cleared. Nine Hundred Degrees is a What's the Story original podcast made in conjunction with Dragonfly. Baltimore's very own hometown hero, Stavros Halkias, is bringing the Fat Rascal Tour to the Lyric Baltimore on October 12th at 7 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. Limited tickets are available. Don't miss Baltimore's own Stavros Halkias performing live at the Lyric Baltimore on October 12th. Grab tickets now at Ticketmaster.com.